much carbon monoxide for me to bear. Welcome in to Crossing Broadcast, the only 7 for 7 podcast in Philadelphia. I'm Joy on Twitter, at Joy on Broad, and that beautiful man right over there is Kevin Kincaid. You can find on Twitter at Kevin underscore Kincaid. Hey, pal. Are there even uh, seven sports that are playing right now? Could we uh, find seven seven things that are taking place? I think we can. Yeah. Belarusian soccer league. I was told that there was a, uh, a Nicaraguan parlay going on. There was some kind oh. of an odds boost going on, I think, on Fox Bet. So, uh, all right, there's Did you put two. some money down on uh, Nicaraguan soccer? I did not today. No, I, I, I did not. Uh, did you uh, throw any money down on this new reconfigured UFC fight that Dana White's been trying to push? No, no, not yet. One of the fights was already canceled too because uh, Rose Namajunas dropped off. Really? They don't know where they're doing it. It's a private island or a private something in the middle of nowhere. He hasn't even said where it's going to be. It's in Key West. Yeah. <laughs> I was, somebody was saying something about doing it like in California or that one of the things that the ideas they had tossed around was like doing it on like a Native American reservation because I guess they're not beholden to like the laws that everybody else is, you know. But uh, I'm intrigued, man. Isn't, I don't, isn't I don't it bad see, enough like, that uh... I, I don't I don't know why if they did WrestleMania uh, in the empty performance center, like I don't see why they couldn't do a, like UFC fights in a place like that. You know, they tried to do it uh, in Nevada at the Apex facility, but they uh, they couldn't get the approval from the state to do it so i don't know what was different i guess i guess wwe doesn't have like a governing like a state athletic commission that would have to give them clearance for them to be able to do it you know yeah i mean there is i know that there's something about AEW. i think ran into an issue a few months ago i want to say it was with like the maryland state commission something Mm. sports i do think that there has to be some kind of a sanction thing just because like there is the potential for violent contact um but yeah, they, there is a uh, a thought out there that pro wrestling, I, I think AEW is actually supposed to suspend um, further tapings. I think they they have enough footage from, I think last week they did recordings, and it's supposed to get them, I think, through the rest of April, and then at that point, it's going to be touch and go. The WWE, there was a rumor that they might be trying to use, I guess they're going to keep using their performance center, but AEW was trying to work something out in a a place that had already um, like a a different facility that is in a state that already has a stay at home order. And I guess they were going to try to circumvent it by just not releasing the location. I mean, there's nothing really to stop, uh, you know, UFC from going to a place in theory and, and trying to do weigh-ins and everything, but the state commission having to sign off on it is obviously going to be the big thing. It's not like you can, yeah. you know, do it in Cleveland at some guy's, you know, uh, uh, let's say uh, snazzy Sal's gym and, like, run the fight because what's going to happen? Like, the word's going to get out that it was there. They didn't get it approved, and... UFC well, that's why I a, thought that they would thing, they yeah. would try to like do it in like the Middle East or something at some uh, like uh, oil shakes palace in the middle of nowhere, like something that was kind of like uh, its own jurisdiction. You know, go to the United Arab Emirates or something and just get away from the United States. But because of the, I, I don't know, with the travel being what it is, I don't know how Dana White can transport a bunch of people to an island, Mortal Kombat style. But um, 
you know, it was interesting to me because what WWE did for WrestleMania was exactly what he was trying to do, you know? So go figure. I, I'm interested to see what happens with that. I'm intrigued, you know, because it's like people who were like kind of shitting on him and saying, you know, what is this guy doing or whatever? He's he's operating from the – him and Roger Goodell are operating from the same playbook where they're like, look, if we can give people what they want during a time when, uh, you know, they're kind of starred for sports and there's really not much else going on and we can do it in a safe way, then we're going to try to do it, you know? I mean, there's something to be said for for that. Uh, there, there's a thin line between being stupid and being unsafe and being irresponsible versus uh, understanding that this is like a – you know, a, a collective mental health of the country kind of thing. And if we can give people something to look forward to, then let's do it. It's important. You know, that's what Goodell was saying when he uh, sent out that memo saying, look, I've heard people's concerns, but we're going, we're going to do the draft. We're going to do the draft, you know, give something, uh, people something to, to do something to look forward to keeps them on their butts watching on TV. And uh, you know, obviously they're not outside spreading of the coronavirus. Otherwise, um, what are you doing with your headphones in the air like that? I don't know. It's banging upstairs. No. Um, if my wife like just clumsily, pregnantly dropped something. Hold on. You you talk for a second. I'll be right back. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's interesting that you're that there's banging and uh, your wife involved in the same sentence, and you're not in the room. But listen, here's the thing. It's like Roger Goodell understands uh, that there's an opportunity here that if they can do the draft which is a glorified conference call like we talked about last week uh in a safe way then we're gonna do it you know and then adam schefter comes out today wednesday uh with another tweet saying that some people are concerned about like having it guys come over to their house and like install what they need to install or uh the it people are uh concerned about going into these places and spreading the germs i'm sitting here thinking like holy fuck like well i'm, I'm looking at uh you know, Fox 29, we turn on Good Day Philadelphia every morning. Bob Kelly is sitting at home doing traffic from home. Sue Serio is doing weather from home. You know, like Kate Bilo has been doing the forecast from her her place for, for the last whatever. I'm like, you're doing like two, three, four-hour broadcasts with, with Fox uh, in the morning. And like you're telling me that, um, you know, Doug Peterson and Howie Roseman can't do the draft, you know, hooked up on Zoom or Skype together and then pick up their phone and call Roger Goodell or whoever and say, hey, we select uh, – you know uh joe burrow you know like how how is it this is not complicated everybody else has, fig has figured it out before you know so i don't know it's weird with Schefter because it seems like he's like kind of injecting some personal kind of stuff in here he had that weird clip where he was on the scott van pelt the other night yeah and he was saying well there's like carnage in the streets and blah 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 i feel like some of his personal stuff is, is bleeding in there you know yeah hold on i might i might be able to find that uh that clip and play it here on the pod yeah it was just strange because uh Normally, he's pretty good about not, you know, you follow him for a long time and he doesn't really interject any kind of personal opinions. He's not a guy who talks about like politics on Twitter. He, he keeps it pretty straightforward. Um, so for him to come out and then like have some of these tweets and suggestions that make it seem like it's the wrong thing to do with the draft. Um, I don't really know what the big deal is. I mean, unless I'm like logistically like looking at this the wrong way, but uh, you know, theoretically, you'd have 30 teams. They'd each just have to have their own little network going on like you and I are doing right now, right? Yep. Uh, you know, Howie Roseman, Doug Peterson, a couple other folks, and then a connection from there uh, separately with the league office saying, hey, here's who we want, here's who we don't want. Mm -hmm. uh, unless I'm missing something with the 
complication of it, it doesn't seem like it should be too much of a big deal. You know, right here, I think I have it. I, I don't know. If, uh, here, let me put it on the, I'll put it over on the feed. The I could hear so whatever they, you were playing. So they can see it. All right. So let's go. Boom. Frankly, we all want that back. We all want to see the days where we have that distraction of football, but OTAs, that's no not job. happening. Yeah. The off-season program, that's not happening. The draft is happening only through the sheer force and determination and lack of foresight from Phil Franklin. I mean, they're, they are determined to put this on while there is carnage in the streets. So there you go. You've adjusted. You've made adjustments with your job. Bob yeah. has made adjustments with his job. Yep. Anthony, you know, yep. the jobs that people are able to do from home, uh, you know, obviously like not all work lines of employment are people able to do what they're, what they have to do, but the ones that have been able to adjust and work from home and set up these kinds of things, Skype or zoom or whatever, uh, they've done okay. So unless I'm missing something here, why is the NFL not able to do this or why are they complaining? I think it's because they're just used to getting their way. Right. So I think that there's just kind of like a, uh, a need to exert their dominance in the situation. And, and the idea of being told no, or being told that they have to conform is something they're just not used to. I think it's more of an, uh, of an ego trip more than anything. Because I think anybody that's being reasonable would say, like, no, th this isn't something that you should be pushing to, one, you know, do in public. And, and two, the notion that, that these high-level executives aren't bright enough to somehow set up their own Skype call or get on Zoom is nonsense. I mean, could it conceptually be a little bit difficult? Uh, it's not like you're going to have all of the GMs on the same zoom call, but it could be your war room. There's no reason that you can't have the war room and then have, it doesn't have to be the GM who sends in the pick. It could be anybody from the organization who hops on the phone and does the good old fashioned phone call. I mean, if you're a GM in, in theory, isn't this exactly what you want? You don't have to have all of the people in your face in the war room. You have them there available to you. You got to have a multi-display setup where you can have your scouts on one screen that are offering their thoughts. You could break down film. You can have things over here. You can have the entire war room in front of you. But ultimately, whoever's decision it is to make the final call, you have all your information available to you. It's right there. It's digitalized. It takes little to nothing to do. And I I'm sorry, the idea that a high-level executive who's making all this money can't possibly afford or can't afford to either get their IT guy to Skype in with them and walk them through it, screen share, whatever, or just look up a few YouTube tutorials is silly. You know what I mean? And, yeah, uh, yeah, it is. And, um, you know, look, I mean, if you had legitimate concerns about the New England Patriots, oh, is it the Maestro? Oh, my oh, look God. It is. He better put those headphones in. What? The Maestro. All my stuff is like in a box, but. So I'm a little echoey, but I wanted to. Swim. Wow, ladies wow, and gentlemen, this is do a we, rare appearance. Do we take, do we take a moment? Like new tools? Like what is this? I'm amazing. Ah, great. I'm amazing. All right. It's good. It's good. I'll give you credit. This is what I'm. Ladies doing. and gentlemen, continue. I, I will. I will see where you guys are at. I was just in a Zoom call for Little League baseball. No, we were talking. Uh, we were talking about the um, the NFL draft stuff, and I was just going to say. 
if uh you know like look if you had a legitimate concern about like the the security of your connection or something like that and howie roseman and doug peterson were on the line with uh you know jim schwartz was there and he had a couple scouts and maybe a couple other people and uh you know bill belichick was trying to pull some crap on you and get in there and figure out who you were trying to draft okay i can understand that being a legitimate concern but uh you know i'm sitting here thinking like if if you in any line of work if you told your boss repeatedly, oh, I can't do this because of this, or I can't do this because of this, or I can't do this, like your boss would have just said to you, look, okay, like just figure it out. I don't care anymore. Like figure it out. Goodell said, this is what we're doing. It's going to happen. And, uh, you know, most of all the pomp and circumstance of the draft is getting all of the the players to the same location, you know, bringing them up on stage, getting the jerseys and doing the bro hugs and the photo op and the interviews and stuff like that. But Really, it's not that much different from running an actual fantasy football draft. Here's the player that we, here's who's available. Here's who we want. I'm going to call it in. We do those things on Skype every year, so I don't know why. Uh, yeah, I don't know why the NFL seems to be having a, a bigger problem with this than than any other uh, random uh, person who's working any other random job. I I actually messed this up a second when Kyle first came in. I should have uh, I should have had this queued up for him. Give me a second. Good God Almighty! Good God Almighty! That's the Maestro's music! Good God! Alright, I'm sorry. Wait, there we go. Mike off. I'm not even going to try the Stone Cold Wiggle, uh, because I just shaved and I look like, like an eight-year-old girl right now. Um, so had I had yesterday's beard, I would have done it. Uh, but So I'm glad you guys are talking about this, because it's what got me to, to jump in here, was Kevin, your post on, uh, on Gazelle. First of all, of all the things in sports right now, and I'm not sure whether I should look at you or look at the camera, so I'm going to look at you guys. Uh, of look all at you. the things in sports right now, the NFL draft is the absolute easiest thing to do. It, like, they're trying to have baseball seasons in Phoenix, hockey seasons in North Dakota. You're trying to figure out ways to play the Masters in the fall and rearranging schedules and travel and all of this. And, uh, like... The draft is the one thing you actually can do remotely with no interruption to what the actual outcome is. Yes, you lose out on the revenue of, of the big pomp and circumstance and all that, but idiots are still going to watch because it's going to, I'm going to watch, we're all going to watch. It's a live event that has something to do with sports, right? So we're all going to sit there and watch no matter how screwy it is. And more people will watch because nothing else is going on. And because it's kind of uniquely screwy and unique and, and whatever. So they're not going to lose that revenue. The self-importance coming from sports people over the last like four to five weeks, and Kevin, I you know this, it started with the media being upset they weren't in the allowed in the locker room. And I forget, I mean, there was a number of like hand-ringy thing pieces in the athletic. There was another uh, Nancy Armour. Is that am I pronouncing that right? She That's wrote good. like this long piece about how it was the end of journalism, all because they had to stand six feet away from the players not in the locker room, but like 10 feet outside the locker room. And in hindsight, that might go down as one of the most tone deaf uh, pieces of journalistic content written like in the history of the planet as like million, as millions of people are about to get a disease, hundreds of thousands, if not over a million will eventually die of this. And you have sports writers complaining about their access and where they get to interview players looks so minuscule today and even more ridiculous than it was four weeks ago. So this NFL thing with like them needing IT guys to come into your house, like 
Zoom is not secure. They should not use Zoom. No one should use Zoom. I was just on a little league baseball thing on Zoom and like, I don't like it on my computer. I want to delete it. It's very insecure. FaceTime, by the way, Ross, encrypted. So is iMessage. They could literally do the whole draft through iMessage. <laughs> they could. It's encrypted. It's Apple it's, everything. It's, it's literally safer than anything you're going to be able to get that's not like CIA grade. But the point is, get private conference calls with your team and then just have a mechanism to notify the league. And if you need to install a webcam somewhere, like this is not It's not complicated. Difficult. You have ent- I'm, I'm almost done. You have entire like national broadcast shows every day broadcasting from people's houses on Skype with connections and visual in a lot of cases worse than this. I'm pretty sure NFL GMs can figure out a way to confer with like six colleagues and then email that pick to the league. Like, not a, not an issue. The NF, the self-importance of sports looks so ridiculous right now because ultimately it's so inconsequential. And the one thing you can do is hold a draft and they're being big bitches about it. It does look pretty funny. Yeah. Cause uh, that was the first complaint. It was like, you know, if we, if we're not allowed in the locker room, we're never going to be allowed in the locker room again, you know? And then when you saw what happened literally like 48 hours late, well, no, I mean, I guess it was, trying to think of the timeline because we had the media availability at Camden on that Tuesday. And then the game was Wednesday, the Pistons game where we got the notification that the season was postponed after that. So like not even in 48 hours, did we go from complaining about not being in the locker room to, Oh wow, this person has the coronavirus. He played against this person who played against this person. This person might have it. So yeah, I mean, when you, when you compartmentalize it like that, it looks ridiculous. But uh, you know, the thing with the NFL draft too, it's funny because we had, these guys have already watched hours of film. They had the senior bowl. They had the combine, you know? So I don't really know, like, regardless if they do it in this way or if they did it in the old way, you know, what they did last year and the years prior, there's really going to be like no difference. I'm trying to think of how it would be any different. Uh, maybe it'll be harder to get in touch with other teams and swing trades and stuff like that, perhaps. But for the most part, you're going to hit on some picks and you're going to miss on some picks. I don't really see it that having much of an impact otherwise they've still been able to talk to these players they've been able to meet them they've been able to talk to their college coaches the film isn't any different so uh other than just like this stubbornness or like we don't want to do it this way or something like i really don't see um you know how it how it's going to affect the end result you know what i'm saying no no gm wants to choose the wrong player and then have base his career on this meanwhile you have entire not only businesses industries just have ceased operating millions of people have lost jobs and this you know the self-importance of millionaire nfl execs complaining about well it might be a little harder to communicate during this critical time where we're mostly taking flyers on guys anyway is is so absurd and the the other thing of self-importance here while we're on the theme while i'm on the theme i guess is and you're you're gonna see this happen i promise you the reason people are panning baseball in Phoenix, because guess what's not going to happen? Most of the media is not going to be there, yep. right? And they're going to have to do this from home. Yep. And even if they are there, they're not getting anywhere near the players, right? They're all bloggers now. They're all bloggers, and they're mm-hmm. going to realize, one, they can do 85 to 90% of the job more efficiently, by the way, from at home. What they're also going to realize is that the people who do most, I know you go to game, you, you both go to games, but like you guys both know that you can efficiently do a lot of what you do exactly where you're sitting right now. 
And they're going to find that out and find out that there's actually people, quite frankly, like us and other internet people who do that sort of thing remotely even better because we have the tools to be like, hey, I'm going to stream the press conference. I'm going to rip the audio. I'm going to, you know, we got all these tools at our disposal, whereas the same Garcides of the world are going to have no idea what the F to do sitting at their laptop if they have to cover a game from their laptop because they can't directly get a quote. And, and the other thing that's going to happen is so many of the employers of these, you know, of these people, media execs realize, wait a minute, we're spending, you know, $4,000 a week in travel expenses on nine writers to cover the team. And you realize they're getting the same output or 90% of the output for a fraction of the cost. You're going to see more media strife in terms of job loss, but you're also going to see all those perks, which have mostly gone out the window now, gone. And is the Athletics still sending two people to every Phillies game once they're out of this? Are they going to, you know, are people going to stop subscribing? Probably not. Like, you're going to see wholesale changes in sports media because it's traveling to away games is so ultimately unimportant and inessential and expensive. So I had to bang the media off the NFL. No, I mean, so I kind of look at this and I I think you're right to an extent. It's, It's either you evolve or you die. And the way that, I think like we are so well set up for this kind of thing is because there's a tech literacy and there's that kind of component to this. There's an ability to speak to people, which quite frankly, if I, I, I'm only been around what two different, I guess, beat staffs with the flyers in the union and that the latter of the two wasn't nearly as often last year as the flyers beat. But there are people who do a decent job of writing but can't talk to save their lives. And the idea of them being interesting enough to try to maintain somebody's uh, attention for longer than three or four minutes would be nonsensical. It, it just doesn't work. I, I guess the concern here has to be, you know, you talk about The Athletic, you talk about any kind of a, a subscription model service. You know, we've seen what's happened to the Philadelphia Inquirer. We've seen what's happened where they were doing, what was it, 52 cents? For 52 weeks, weren't they doing something like that, Kevin? It was yeah. They ridiculous- they kept like bringing it down and down and down, and that's uh you know I'd written those stories like hey they're offering like 13 cents a week or they're offering this or that or this or that you know and the fact that it kept continuing showed that yeah they were kind of struggling to get people signed up. And so I guess like there there is this this part now where you kind of have to question the the long the long standing logic of sending reporters to games, and I guess there there is a trade off here. Like I will say that the one thing. That like Anthony and I talk about all the time, at least on the hockey side is, and I I railed on this and I'll have a clip of it going up tomorrow, thanks to uh, video guy Craig for uh, splicing it. But like we've done four press conference or or conference calls now with three Flyers players and the uh, GM Chuck Fletcher. And at each of those conference calls, I have heard the same five or six reporters ask the same question of each guy. And at some point, you're like, what the hell's the point? What? Why? Uh, like, I, I railed on this last night because I've I've listened to the same person say on every call, has Kevin Hayes brought something to the locker room? Is he a good fit? What does he bring? And it's been the same answer every time because every player since he's been here two weeks in got himself acclimated to, you know, he said he was like a fly on the wall. And then he got himself, you know, acclimated to the team and he started to show who he is and and he fits in with the locker room. So since two weeks into his tenure here or into camp, 
Every player has said the same thing. The GM said the same thing. The head coaches said the same thing. The assistant coaches have said the same thing. The idea that somebody would then go onto a conference call and ask that same question to each person is like such an antiquated way of doing it instead of adapting to the time. Like it's as if at least on the Flyers media side, it's it's as if a lot of people are still treating these conference calls like they're a post-game scrum or as if they're a post-game media availability, which by the way, like a lot of those people end up sharing the same quotes anyway. Like not everybody, this is the thing that drives me nuts. I've watched people who work for traditional media outlets who I don't know how much money they make. Kyle, you'd probably know. Kevin, you might have some idea. But these people have worked in the business for decades. They don't even go down into the locker room. They sit in press row. They wait until the younger person or the person that I guess has worked there, you know, for a shorter period of time. And they ask what the quotes were and they get the audio sent to them. They don't even do that part. And so I just kind of sit back and I'm like, I look at what I'm doing during a game where I'm clipping every goal. I'm screenshotting everything. I'm making gifts. I'm running multiple Twitter accounts and multiple Facebook pages to get the stuff out. We're doing the press row show that we've got to have the interactive video, audio, and the chat that everybody sees on the stream right now. And and still write about the game or do a side piece where I go and I talk to a player at their at their locker. If I can do all that and it's not my first job and I didn't go to school for it, I don't understand how so many traditional media types haven't been able to adapt. And maybe if... If nothing else, and I don't want to see anybody lose their job, maybe this is the wake-up call that like some people need to adapt to the modern trends of how people consume their media and how they want to consume media about their team that they care about. Maybe that's a positive. I don't know. I think you just mentioned it. You said you didn't go to school for it, right? I, I know I've said this on previous iterations of the podcast, but it's like you're taught – and, and rightfully, because most of the people who went to school for this were long before like the internet was fully established, but you're taught this is how you cover something, particularly a sport. What do you do? How do you cover the high school team? How do you cover the college team? You show up, you watch the game, you get the special quote, the special quote from the coach, you talk to two players, you get a quote, maybe you get a unique quote, and that's your big thing, and then you write the game story and you write a sidebar. I mean, that that's how you're taught to do it. You do it in high school, then you intern somewhere, you cover a college team, you cover a D2 team, you cover St. Joe's, you work your way up to cover in Villanova. Sorry. Uh, and then you, you know, and then you work your way up to covering a pro team, right? And your whole ecosystem is we do this, 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 and this. And if you never, you know, that was your metric. That's what your boss wanted you to do. That's what you were judged on. That's what your publication did. And then you don't realize that the way other people, and I don't just mean the internet, podcasters, whatever, whether it's the athletic or us or Barstool or what, like everyone has their own bend, but everyone does something unique that their audience likes and it's different. And the people who are starting to get weeded out in that space, to be honest, like I, I don't know, I mean, you guys are there more. A lot of the people who are covering these teams now are much younger and do understand the internet. So I think you're weeding out the old people, but I do think still what's happening now is exposing how limited some people in sports are. Like the, the people for the athletic who just bash blogs for years, right? And, you know, this exalted journalism they're doing. How quickly, how quickly now are they doing video game simulations and writing about it and doing polls of 10 best lists? Like how quickly you turn into a blog, right? And 
like Kevin, you're doing an unbelievable job of finding stuff to write about. And even when it's not sports, it's like, I want to find something interesting. But look at some of the other sports publications or even the, the broadcast networks. They're doing two things right now. They're airing old games, cool, inventive. I know they have to do it. And esports. And then the sports, like you have sports writers who are writing gamers about video games. It's so, who is reading that? Who honestly is reading a thousand words about a simulated A's game on the athletic? Tell me if one person read that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to, uh, you know, you talk shit about something or you thumb your nose at something or you think you're, you're on this kind of level and then it comes to a point in time where, okay, you may have to do something like that to get by. And I think it, I, there is a generational thing to it. There's definitely, it's definitely about adaptability and being able to, about, to write about a different, a bunch of different uh, subjects or having the flexibility to, to go from here to here to here. And, and that makes you, I, th I think like in a macro journalism kind of level, this is something we've struggled with in the industry for years. Um, is people who have wider ranging skill sets and learning to work them in uh, properly. My personal experience when I was at Channel 3, uh, which my, my, or I should go back, actually my first TV stations in Georgia, Georgia was a right to work state. We didn't have unions, no union representation, right? So that they were less strict about what you could do, right? So I could write, I could produce, I could edit, I could go carry a camera, go out in the field and do that. When I came to Channel 3 in Philadelphia, uh, strict union shop, a couple different unions representing different people, I walked into an edit bay and I got yelled at. They said, why are you in here? You can't do that. You know, because the way it was blocked up was this person edited, this person was the anchor, this person was the photographer, this person was the technical director. So you had these like younger kids who were coming through journalism school where they learned how to do skill one, two, three, four, and five. And then you kind of like hit this low ceiling where you had union protected people who could only do one thing. You know what I mean? And I think that that was always a struggle because those people would be there and they'd be occupying these jobs and they'd only do one thing. And there really wasn't any room for any of the, like the 20, 25, 30 year olds to, to, to grow, to get past that, you know? And I think that trickles over into sports writing in Philadelphia, where you have people who have only been doing one type of writing or covering one team or doing one thing specifically. Um, and you see that struggle a little bit now because you have these younger kids who didn't really have anywhere to go. They ended up writing for blogs or doing stuff on the side, things from home, who can, to Russ's point, who can write, who can cut video clips. Um, if there's no sports, I can fucking write 10,000 words about Ozark if I need to. I want to talk you know, about that I'm, later. Hey, no, Upset no, Kyle. Three episodes in. I okay, we won't, I won't Wait, spoil three episodes it. But into the, the first season? The point being is that you can, you can slide from, from thing to thing if necessary. And I think... I'm, I'm with Russ. I don't want to see anybody lose their job or any any negative stuff like that. But it is kind of a reckoning in a sense that things that we have been talking about for a long time are kind of coming to fruition. And you hate that it has to be in this kind of fashion. But I think you're seeing who's uh, flexible, who's adaptable, and people who are still in this one track mind of only being able to do one thing. You can't say uh, that there wasn't a warning. You know, I mean, because we've been talking for years about trying to, you know, to add add skills and, and make your make yourself a more useful employee, um, no matter who you work for, if you can do multiple things. And now you're seeing that they can't do that. That's a question that anybody who enters the 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 job force should question. They should ask themselves. I tell people this all the time, but you have to ask yourself, what about my skill set differentiates me from everybody else who's going for the same job or who's going to go study the same thing in college. And if there's nothing unique about you, then there are probably thousands of other people who are going to be competing for the same jobs, the same scholarships as you. And it's kind of on you as a person to make sure that you're better prepared or if you have the same skill set that you're going to outwork everybody. 
And there have been a lot of people who have been able to kind of get by because once you get in at one of these publications, it's really hard to get rid of you. And like I said, I don't want to see anybody lose their job. Kyle, but, what did, um, and Russ too, because I don't know if I even asked you, but what did you make of what uh, Entercom did? Uh, not not just here in Philly, but nationally too. Uh, yeah, honestly, I didn't follow the national stuff that in detail. I mean, I, I know most of what I know about it from reading what you wrote. I mean, like, it's a, it's a, you probably noticed. I mean, the radio is, there's a lot of fat, right? A lot of fat to be trimmed. Um, I don't know. I mean, I feel like it's probably overly bloated at this point, uh, in terms of costs and, you know, people who are on and the names that you might recognize as a Philly sports fan or let go, like, like, uh, Sue Schilling and, um, help me out. Joe Altamonte. <laughs> Joe um, Altamonte. I mean, they're names Cindy like, you know, they're the uptake guys I've heard in the car for years. And Joe Altamonte, you say, you know, 610 WIP, like, you know, and I, I feel bad again. I feel bad. A ton of people are losing their jobs right now, not just here. So, like, it, it's this is like economic devastation across the board. But I don't think like those positions are particularly like sacrosanct or um, surprising because it's like these are people who are doing, you know, you're getting sports updates and I know there's behind the scenes promotion things, but like those are the things where you can get your highly paid people to sit in front of the mic and produce content for four hours. And you, you know, you keep the people who make the money and like a lot of these other jobs in radio are probably not that well paid to begin with, but, uh, you know, really don't serve that much of a purpose these days. So I, I'm not surprised by it. Um, every business is letting go of employees. I mean, to an extent and, you know, certainly in sales in, you know, the, the advertising dollars won't be there. I saw a thing the other day. You're expecting the global advertising market to drop as much as 33% over the next year, which is staggering because it fuels so much. It, it fuels not only like people in media and sales jobs, but it fuels those business, those businesses who are advertising you're doing because it makes them money back. So if you're a radio station where most of your money is coming from advertising and, you know, sports bars are shut down, casinos are shut down. These are some, you know, jewelry stores there's no you know there's no wedding no one's getting married right now like no one's out buying shopping for jewelry is not essential like the big advertisers especially in sports radio are not existing in business right now so none of it is surprising yeah it's interesting because um you know when you look down the list of names you just get the the sense that um the coronavirus is kind of good cover for them to eliminate a bunch of positions and a bunch of people that they had probably been looking at for a long time. You know, um, Rob Cherry came to CBS a bunch of a bunch of times to do TV with me when I was working there, and uh, it was great. He'd always come in wearing jeans and like a denim or like a Canadian tuxedo or like an untucked shirt or something like that. But it was I always enjoyed until you've seen his YouTube videos on his couch, couch, couch with his cat. <laughs> I have, I have old blog posts about it. I got to dig it up. But like Rocco's YouTube videos, I, I'd i say top five, like hardest crying laughs in my life was Rob, Rob Cherry's YouTube. Yeah, but it's like, it's funny because like Rob, for example, like he's like the perfect example of the type of person that I'm talking about because he had been there for what, like 35 years. Uh, he was the shop steward 
of I, I mean I think he still was at the time but like the SAG after like union rep- representative um you know for the station and uh probably making really good money that goes back to being grandfathered into a you know of contracts that had been you know negotiated for three decades or something and uh you know they see an opportunity here to say look we're in a crisis we have to make cuts we were probably going to look to buy you out anyway and uh so that was kind of the final straw there and they they can replace him on the week they have rob ellis you know working part-time doing his shift now um you know you have um barchard and james and elliot who are doing uh the go birds podcast on the weekend they have younger people that they can plug in there so it just seems like um re- you know regardless of whether it makes sense or not or whether it's fair or not i think it's it's a good uh, convenient excuse good cover um, for a lot of these media companies probably to make moves that they were going to make. And David Yadgaroff had been on record saying, look, I mean, mu- music is is going the way of automation. You know, it's already automated at a lot of different spots. So when, you know, Casey Reed um, and Andrea Duffy were like the first two names to come out to say that they let those people go, I don't, I don't think that anybody should um, be surprised by any of that stuff. You know, it's, it's, I think radio and media, traditional media, terrestrial radio is probably headed for this kind of reckoning for a long time. It's a shame that it had to happen during a global pandemic, but uh, I don't think anybody should really look at this and and be surprised, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's probably, I'm not even sure it's an excuse to let people like there's, there are real financial concerns. So if you got to cut costs, you're starting, you're starting with those, you know, older, probably more expensive positions that you were going to let go anyway. But I mean, the, you know, like uh, you mentioned something there, I meant to follow up on. Go ahead, Russ. Uh, it'll come to me. I was just going to say, you know, there, there are, I guess, a few ways to look at this, but the advertising aspect of this is huge, right? Because without the advertising revenue, if you're running a, a radio station of any kind, or if you're running a network, I mean, you know, for us, I guess we're lucky in a sense as, as a podcaster or, or as an expanded podcast network. And of course, Kyle going over there and, you know, purchasing, acquiring Elite Sports New York. And now they have their podcasts that we're going to be starting maybe do a little bit of crossover with. The beauty of having those kinds of things is there's infrastructure in place Coors already via a site. What? Start start liking Coors Light. Oh? You can't just say that and then say nothing else. That's not okay. All right, anyway. Uh, there is something to be said for, like, you know, there's infrastructure in place here where we aren't as, I guess, beholden to having to have an advertiser on board for us to to exist as a, as an entity. Whereas a sports radio station or a music radio station, so, so much everything is, is reliant on that advertising revenue because there's nothing else, right? And so I feel bad because in a sense, like, I, I get why people had to lose their jobs. I get why... Uh, a station or a, a massive corporation is going to want to or, or is going to feel the need to cut positions because if you can stretch this out, it was what Beasley did the thing. Um, what was it? Beasley's CEO took a uh, a hit, right? 20%. Yeah. 20% to kind of, I guess, show solidarity because that's what was being asked of the on-air talent. I mean, these things are, are going to happen. You just have to hope that at some point things kind of bounce back and, and maybe, I, I, I don't know. We've had our own issues in the past of this, but you know, you can go out and get that big corporate partner to be a, a sponsor on a show or to be a sponsor on the site. And then you can also try to pursue small businesses. And as much as I love promoting small businesses, and there are two on screen right now that have advertised with us in the past, and so I'm obviously not going to charge them for 
advertising or for having screen time tonight because I want them to be successful because I, I am of the belief that, you know, by virtue of, you know, continuing to promote a business that we love, like Odd Logic Brewing Company, where Kevin and I went out and did a live show, or supporting Kelly's Candies down in Delco with a second location to come in August in Westchester. The idea is that we obviously want to continue to work with those people and to help them through this hard time. And the thought is that, you know, when things start to stabilize, we might be able to work with them in the future. But I'm not fretting right now monetarily. I'm okay and my family's okay and I'm very lucky. But somebody who owns a brewery or somebody who owns a candy store, like they need support right now. And so I guess, you know, the the thought here has to be is is radio as a whole going to, you know, continue to try to get corporate partners or are they going to have to really do, you know, getting boots on the ground and try to get small businesses to buy into the idea of massively discounted advertising runs for the next few months until sports are back. I don't know how you make it work. And until you it's, it's can not, get some kind I mean, of ad revenue coming in, you know, right there's not, not there, it doesn't business. seem like there's a fix here. Right now, it's not going to be small businesses because they're even worse off than the big businesses. Yeah. I mean, you know, most small businesses, unlike a larger business that has credit lines and cash and can let people go to free up money. I mean, most small businesses are run, um, you know, they can't sustain a month of not operating. I mean, yeah. Unless you're a seasonal business and you just sort of build it in. And look, I mean, we take, our whole business is advertising revenue. I mean, we really don't do much apparel anymore. It's just a different kind of revenue where it, so much of it is based around betting now that we lucked, quite frankly, like Crossing Broad lucked out in that our, our year is so heavily weighted in football season that um, like this affects us a, a, some. And if it, the longer it goes on, the more it would affect us. But because it's so weighted towards football season and, you know, personally, I was expecting like April through July and August to be the slow period anyway, we really missed out on a month of like March Madness and Masters, which is still kind of big for what we do. And then after that, it really kind of slows down. So I, we're partially lucky in that regard, but we mm-hmm. also don't have the overhead, you know, the radio does. Yep. We could, um, you know, run this lean to mean and we do like you know, the mic, you guys are using hundred dollar microphones. Kevin's probably 200. That looks fancy, but Ross has got a hundred dollar mic. I don't even have mine set up. It's just a 58. It's not a sure. Yeah. It's, it's a SM 58. It's like a, it's actually a music microphone as you can yeah. see the guitars in the yeah, yeah, yeah. back. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I mean, so there's, there's a lot of those considerations, but I think your point about like the, the me, uh, like the media companies, there's a wide, like the Rob cherries of the world. You used to get, to a media, a, a mainstream outlet. And from a local standpoint, there you go. Like, uh, oh, nice, nice. <laughs> like a, uh, like the Inquirer, or Comcast Sportsnet or WIP, and then you made it. And you could be relevant and stay there for a long time. And guys like Rob Cherry who showed up, did their job, can just stick around forever. The problem is now, like there's, there's almost this inequality thing going on in media too, right? So many people see these high-profile jobs that the Jim Romes of the world and the Colin Cowherds and the Bill Simmons and all this, and everyone wants to be that guy, right? And so, or, or girl, or and so few jobs are actually high-paying. And on a local level, you see it. You have like one or two hosts, and Angelo and Missinelli, who are like mainstays that the whole station is built around. And they are compensated exceedingly well, right? Into the high six figures or seven figures in the case of Angelo, right? But then you have the other, the night and weekend guys and the part-time guys who are the also rats. And 
they're the ones who get cut. So you have, it's no longer like, wow, everyone at the big station is big. Now it's like they have one or two big names. And then as we've seen in recent years, everybody else is interchangeable. Everybody. Hosts we like, hosts, that, you know, it's like Harry Mays who were, who were, you know, 10 years ago would have been like untouchable because they're like the voice of the afternoons. No longer. Now it's like, okay, cool. You're, you don't want to deal with what we're proposing or you're too expensive. You're gone. Like we're keeping Mike and we're keeping Angelo and everybody else is interchangeable. Barkham, gone. Like Bruno, gone. Like even household names locally are interchangeable and nationally. You look at like the Ed Werger's, the John Clayton's of the world, ESPN, gone, gone. That mid-tier just got hollowed out. You kept the Adam Schefters and the Woges who are making seven figures. And they got a lot of cheap people at the bottom and all those mid-tier, you know, like upper middle class range salaries and media gone. You know, it's interesting. Speaking of a lot of money, um, I did the column today on the people who were given like Jeff Bezos and other people shit for not donating enough money. And uh, Darren Ravel came out and tweeted something about that and he deleted it right away. And like the point being that, you know, obviously it's really trendy right now to like say, look, these people are worth billions of dollars. Why are they only donating X amount of money? Because the, it's a percentage of their net worth or whatever. Right. Um, I mean, and first of all, saying like people don't even know what they're talking about when they talk about net worth. Like you could say that the Sixers are worth like $2 billion, for example. Okay, well, that doesn't mean anything unless Josh Harris like actually sells the team and turns a worth amount into a liquid asset that he has access to right there. So first of all, people aren't aren't even like framing that correctly. But, um, you know, I think the point of the column was just to say, look, if Jeff Bezos is he could probably give more than a hundred million dollars for sure. A uh, hundred million dollars is still a lot of friggin' money. Like it's still going to go a lot further than like the 1% of my earnings, which is like, of you know, however much that is. So I think it's just like this, like donation shaming and this like pile on of all these rich people. Cause they're not donating enough as if it's like, okay to tell other people what to do with their money. Um, it's just such a like negative knee jerk reaction to me because at the end of the day, we're all trying to help out in whatever way we can. You know, billionaire is going to give, you know, $100 million, $200 million, however much they can give. Uh, I'm going to try to like patronize local businesses and get takeout beer and stuff like that and help out in that way. You know, maybe I can go donate blood or ask my neighbor if they're cool or if I can get them anything from the store or whatever. Like there's ways for everybody to help out. But this like knee jerk reaction to just criticize people because you don't think they're given enough money. I, I don't really know like what it what it solves at the end of the day. It doesn't help help the problem at all. It's such a deadspin thing to do. Like they were notorious for this. I saw people bagging, uh, I think Jack Ma, the Alibaba guy, when he gave 100 million or 10 million or 18 million of mass, something a couple of months ago. And it's like, one, first of all, you're, you give $18 million, right? Or if that's the equivalent of $56 for you or $120 for you, have you given $120, right? Have you, have you actually, if you have, okay, maybe then you could talk. I'm guessing most people haven't. Part of the issue is I'm sure if like, like Bill Gates is, his foundation is doing billions for creating seven different factories to manufacture all seven of these vaccine candidates, fully well knowing that five of those seven are going to be completely useless because apparently they all have like different ways in which they need to be manufactured, like these very specific ways. But Gates, who's been studying this for years, knows that when the vaccine is ready, you need to produce literally billions of doses of it 
for the civilized world, right? Yep. And that needs to be ready on day one. Otherwise, you're talking about two, three years before people are able to get a vaccine for this. So he has the money and has a very specific way to spend it and is okay losing billions on those other factories or repurposing them and selling them off. So that's a good use of, of billions of dollars in someone who has it. But like when you donate money, when you're donating $100 million, a billion dollars like Jack Dorsey, like it's hard to spend that much money quickly, right? So I'm sure if someone went to Jeff Bezos, and I put this in your post, Kevin, like if someone went to Jeff Bezos, like, hey, it's $250 million and you could cure all the PPE issues, right? I'm sure he'd be like, you know what? That's a donation. It doesn't hurt. Like, yes, right? The answer is when you donate $100 million, you have to make sure someone's actually spending it the right way and not just looting it and pissing it away. So part of it is like, here's $100 billion because I could see a way for people to use that. Beyond that, there might not be the capability. If he donated it for masks and the people you give it to are like, we can't make more than $100 million worth of masks. That's part of it too. Well, you like, know what though? Just, the, the thing is people just like to hate rich people. Like they can't do anything right. So there's something about that. I, I would also argue, I guess, it's one thing for somebody who, to your point, hasn't gone out and, and donated $58 or $100 or whatever, right? I think that the real shaming here is what you see when Jack Dorsey goes and says, you know what, 28% of my net worth, which is, I guess, that that $1 billion that he's going to donate, that I guess he's liquidating from his assets that he holds, his shareholdings in, in Square. When you look at that and you say, all right, that's a billion dollars, it's almost a third of his net worth, and he's liquidating that to try to help, that to me does a lot more damage to what Bezos did than seeing... 50,000 people pissed off on Twitter and Facebook and calling him all kinds of names because what you're seeing is another billionaire putting up a higher percentage of their overall net worth. And now by comparison, I think Bezos looks like more of a clown for only contributing 10% of that when it's what, 1 billion versus his, isn't he estimated at what, $122 billion net worth? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. Like I think they, that's they the way that you realize. really get somebody is by comparing them to their peers, not to the average person. People like that. I don't know what their stock is in too bad because they're doing a lot of business right now. But like when their stock goes down 20%, that's the sort of person who loses $26 billion over the course of two weeks. So it's not it's, – it's, it's literally not real money, right? Yeah. And he can't just – you know, um, he has more cash than anybody in the history of the world. This isn't the point to say he's not rich or anything. But it's like – $100 million is a lot of money, and there's a use for it. I'm sure there will be other opportunities. I'm sure if someone came to him, I'm sure if Bill Gates goes to him and be like, hey, we got a team up on, we're two of the five richest people on the planet. We, uh, Me, you, and Warren, and the Koch brothers got a kick in a billion each, and we could build this, and we could, we could literally save the world uh, by building these seven factories. We need a billion. I'm sure he's in. But it's, it's like... That's so much money. There's nothing to do with it sometimes. Like, who do you give it to? Someone gave I, the example is like, if you gave us a billion dollars and said, go make masks, we'd be like, how the fuck do you set up a mask factory? Right. You, you have to have someone who could actually do something with that yeah. money. You also can't pick and choose where, when you're going to be outraged or who you're going to be outraged against. Like to go back two weeks ago to when Josh Harris and David Blitzer came out and they said, we're going to do this employee salary reduction thing, which was really just a furlough. 
you know, because they were only going to pay them 80% of their salary, but they only had to work 80% of their hours. They were only going to work Monday to Thursday. So really it was just a staggered furlough, right? Everybody went batshit crazy about it. Everybody flew off the handle. They got so much negative publicity that Josh Harris came out and apologized and said, we're not going to do this. And uh, to his credit, he's made like multiple six figure donations since then, not just in this area, but also with, with like the Prudential center, like Newark area, like their devil's stuff. And, um, you know, but I don't you know, if we're going to be outraged about that, then why didn't I hear the same like pushback when Beasley decided to do the same thing for their people or when Real Salt Lake or DC United did it? You know, I mean, do we only have so much outrage saved up for this billionaire or do we not like this guy because he's got the most money and he's a New York guy or is, is it because he's in like private equity? I, it, it just seems like people are kind of all over the place with picking and choosing uh, who to be mad at. And in that one instance, Twitter bullying, uh, did work to their point. But like, you know, if you say, if, if we're still not back to normal by the end of July or something like this, and Josh Harris and David Blitzer are still bleeding money, then, uh, do they come back around and say, look, okay, we got to do the furlough plan now. You know, I mean, you're just kind of kicking the can down the road because there's no finite end point of this thing, at least not now. So, you know, yeah, I think I people think just I, have to kind of keep that in mind when we're yelling about it on the internet, you know? I think they kind of screwed themselves too because now they now that some other teams have done this and this might drag on for a while, now they almost have to wait longer than everybody else because they yeah. they took the bad PR in the chin. Um, yeah, they ate, they ate the first bullet because they were the first ones to come out and say they're going to do it. So everybody's ire was directed right at them and yeah. then other teams kind of slid in and started doing afterwards, you know? Yeah. And sports are different. Like it, people don't do it because no one own, knows who like is in charge of easily. I think they're, are they publicly traded? They are, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, so it's like, first of all, that is a business that I'm guessing has much narrower margins than the NBA. I mean, if you look in the last five years, all you've read about what a great business the NBA is, they're raking in money. These TV contracts are ridiculous. The owners in this case are, you know, arbitrage gurus who, Look, I don't, I don't like, as you guys know, I don't knock rich people like good, good for, for these guys. Right. But what they do doesn't like, they don't, I guess they do buy businesses and make things, but they play on arbitrage. They buy uh, like down businesses, they cut costs, they, you know, they flip them and, and all of that. Um, you know, but they're not out there like making, you know, a company like, I'm just going to use it, just Apple or a company who makes sneakers like Nike, they're making things. So we don't care if Phil Knight is rich or if Bill Gates is rich, or if um, you know Steve Jobs got rich. They were making things, people bought them and used them. Whereas we look at private capital guys specifically doing what they do, and we're like, these guys are making billions of dollars sort of playing the margins and all of this. And for them to cut what amounted to probably hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of salary in a business that is high, you know, not only rolling in cash right now, but also the, the investment in what they made in the team has probably increased eight to tenfold. So if they needed money out, they're going to get exceedingly rich all over again. I think the, the optics of sports are just different because you're dealing with a fan base. It's a community. It's not a business where people buy stuff. No one, very few businesses other than like the big brands like Disney's and the Apple's of the world and the Nike's like have people who read blogs and go to message boards about their stuff. Right. You know, everyone does that for sports teams. So when, when they see the rich guy owner, uh, you know, lay off, uh, 
you know, handful of employees or furlough a handful of employees. It's just bad PR. It's always been different with sports. Always. Like you always have to balance the, the sheer business piece of it with the emotional connection fan thing. And the Sixers have always pushed more than any other team towards the business side of things. And I respect that. Like I think with Scott O'Neill and Chris Heck do like they're really smart business guys and they know that they can raise ticket prices and get away with it. And good for them. Like, if we're paying for the tickets, fine. But the trade-off is, and I think they know that, when you do that with sports, you're going to get pushback, you know? And family organizations like the, like the Flyers back in the day and even the Phillies uh, under, you know, Montgomery were much more, like, sort of family-friendly. They don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to piss off the fans, whereas I think you're seeing new school sports ownership for the most part is, like, this is a business, you know? Yeah. I got a I got a text a little bit ago, Kevin. I I don't know if Kyle's done now. I think Kyle. Uh, do you have another? You have another call set up. You have uh, another acquisition call, to make. Like, what's going on? I'm being summoned. <laughs> Bye. Oh, is it that time? I guess it is. No, your kids should be in bed. Come on. Now. What? No, kids are. Oh, we're okay. supposed to work. We're supposed to work out. Oh. You want to get it? Stay healthy. How's the mirror working? That's what we're gonna do. Mirror the mirror. Okay. It's great. It's, is it? It's unbelievable investment and could not have come at a better time for quarantine. It's got like going to get them as a sponsor? Is that how this is going to work now? Good. Yeah. Get Mirror. So I have a... Um... I said you should get Mirror. Get Mirror as a uh, sponsor. Go work on that. Don't tell me about beer unless you have a, you know, some details to share. Otherwise... Uh... All right. Well, here, I'll, I'll hit you up with a little outro music. You ready? This is nice. Are you, are you not done? No, we have to talk about Ozark, but you're uh, oh, you can't yeah, be here for it. So here, I'm gonna play you off. Hold on. You don't know the song? Yes, it is. Well done. It was just it's been a long time since you've been on this show. I I was feeling a little bit uh, a little nostalgic. All right, he's gone. So I'm was that, playing soccer now, tomorrow. Was that, was that your like sound or was that just the chair? No, it's just a chair probably creaking. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I'm playing soccer tomorrow just with one other person. Okay. What? We're going to we're gonna break uh, quarantine. Well, not quarantine. I got to stop saying quarantine because we're not in quarantine. We're just in self-isolation. Quarantine would mean that you have been ordered to like there's some shit wrong with you. You got to like sit around and do nothing. Yeah. Um, but everything in Philly has been like locked up and chained off. You go to the different parks and stuff and they've been like, they literally locked. Uh, mm-hmm. The gates are locked. You can't get in. You'd have to hop the fence. Um, but I found a place that's got some space. So me and another dude are going to go and we're going to stand 30 yards apart. We're just going to ping long balls. Not smart. We're just going to hit diagonals. You were afraid to talk about that when the uh, maestro was on here, weren't you? No, I was going to say it, and then you did your stupid graduation song. It wasn't and then he stupid. Left, it was so. brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. All that right. song sucked. Well, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's got a, you know, it has a, it has a purpose, you know? Do I talk about so, Ozark? Uh, Is there anything you want to talk about from sports? Do we care? Let me ask no, you your I'm favorite question that you the... like to drop in Slack. Do we care? <laughs> no, I was just looking down the queue of stories that we did. Um <clears throat> Brian Colangelo interviewing for the Bulls was pretty funny. Um, 
He probably didn't I mean, tell I, his wife Barbara, but uh, she knows now. Well, I mean, there just seems to be whether whether you believe, you know, whether you believe him or not. Say the Chicago Bulls believed him that it was his wife who had to do with it 100 percent he didn't have anything to do with it. i mean there's still so much like toxicity left over from that situation that i just don't know why you would touch it in the first place because you know you're just gonna take a ton of shit it'd be, it'd be one thing if like um you know brian colangelo was like the best gm of all time mm-hmm. you know and you knew that you you would be okay taking that like pr hit or that risk or or if the people making fun of you for bringing him back in but he he's not a an amazing general manager he's okay but i don't know i don't know why they would do that um angelo cataldi won our worst of philadelphia um bracket well not angelo himself his uh fake outrage won it uh surprise knocked off the schuylkill expressway which it? was the defending champion hey i i want to play this game with you really quickly because i know that you're gonna have opinions um this was going around on twitter i don't know if you well I'm sure you've seen the image here. I'll drop it into Slack. I'm going to put it up on the uh, the uh, live stream for those who are watching as opposed to those who are listening to us the day after. But there's this image going around about Wawa and it's, you know, pick your pick three of the three of the eight. So I'm going to drop this in Slack really quick. Did you I, like the pick three I did with uh, Skip Bayless? And I did. Yeah. Jim Rome. And I did. It was good. Here, wait, hold on. I'm going to I'm going to put it in Josina. a, in a Slack. So you've got eight options. You can only pick three. And I've gotten into it with some people on uh, on Twitter about this, and I'm not surprised because people have bad takes on food. Um, and by the way, for the record, I don't hate Wawa. I just don't like everything about Wawa. So, uh, all right, for those who are listening, you have to pick three of the following. Number one, Wawa Hot Coffee. Number two, Sizzlies, number three, the assorted iced tea uh, beverage line from Wawa. Number four is a cheesesteak. Number five is the gobbler. Number six are the handcrafted, like, cold coffee drinks. Number seven are the cold hoagies. And number eight, the meatball hoagies. So, again, hot coffee, Sizzlies, iced tea, cheesesteak, gobbler, cold coffee, Cold hoagies, and I guess hot hoagies or or meatball sandwiches. I'm picking uh, iced tea as one of mine. Okay. When I was a skater, little skate rat, growing up in uh, Gilbertsville and Boyertown, we used to carry around uh, like whole like half gallon like iced teas with us when we were <laughs> we skating did that at the, the high school loading dock. We did that with <laughs> Gears Ice Tea up in uh, Schuylkill County. Yeah, tea, yeah, we had Turkey Hill and Wawa, so we go to Wawa one of them. Iced tea. Um, I'll go with the meatball sub number eight, okay. and uh, the gobbler is overrated. The gobbler sucks. Um, <laughs> Hold on, um, break that down. What part of the gobbler sucks? Because a lot of All people of were it. upset that I didn't pick the gobbler. I don't know. It's just like I can feel. Um, I can feel the cholesterol building like i can feel my arteries hardening as i eat it i you guess my, number seven gets the sandwich the, regular the, hoagie. Cold, the cold hoagies you know my problem yeah. with the gobbler is is that uh to me like there there's a place for sliced deli meat turkey and then there's like the need for authentic turkey that's you know the shredded turkey where it actually feels like it was at some point from a turkey uh and the gobbler to me the places that do the best gobblers are your local sandwich shops where they actually use the shredded turkey because I think you kind of need that that texture 
you need something to have a little bit of bite because the stuffing is nice and warm and soft, maybe mm-hmm. a little bit crunchy, and then you get the gelatinous kind of texture from the uh, cranberry sauce. Anyway, uh, you picked three totally different ones than what I picked. Figures. Number one I went with was the uh, number one, the, the hot coffee. I think the coffee's fine. I think in a pinch, you can get a nice handcrafted cafe con leche. Huh? should get that. Uh, or you can go and get the Cuban coffee with a little bit of the Irish sweet cream. Make that yourself. Number two has to be the Sizzlies. Sizzlies are like the one thing that I think Wawa does really well that nobody else does with the expediency because you can't get yeah. something like that even at Dunkin' Donuts. Like to me, their their bagel sandwiches don't scratch that same itch. And I'm a big fan of the pork roll, egg and cheese sizzly, and I can't get that anywhere else. So I'm going to go with number two. And then my third thing is number six. I've got to go with the cold coffee for the same exact reason as I did for number one. I think they're solid. I think the handcrafted ones are great. I think that the iced cafe con leche is really good. And, you know, on a hot summer day to go in and get a nice iced coffee from there, like it's I'm not going to say that it's exceptional. I'm not going to say that I couldn't do better myself at home. I like to think that the cold brewing that we do at home here uh, with some of the fixings are superior. Uh, We use better beans or whatever. But I think in a pinch, I'll go with, you know, the hot coffee, the cold coffee and the sizzlies. And I don't think it's particularly close. I think if you pick a cheesesteak from Wawa. We should kick you out. We should send you to Dallas. The iced teas are yeah, fine. Nobody should get a cheesesteak from Wawa. The, the iced teas are fine, but like I, I would make the case that there are probably three other brands in the same cooler that I would take over the Wawa iced tea. And the cold hoagies have fallen off, off a cliff. I mean, I've only lived in Wawa territory for, I guess, going on seven years. And in that time the difference has has been staggering and i know that you always kind of go back to that well of like wawa is not supposed to compete with your local hoagie shop i get it if if i'm making a late run back from a flyers game and it's 12 30 and i i don't have anywhere else to go it's nice to have that option but if i've got like a primo hoagies across the street i'm gonna go in there if i've got a local deli down the road like i'm going to go there if it's all about expediency, it's fine, but I, I'd go with coffee and sizzlies. I really don't give a flying fuck. Don't you? Don't you? That's kind of hurtful. Just a little so bit. what did you think of Ozark? I'll tell Wait, you why. I really don't give a flying fuck. You can't do that. Thank Matt, you, Charles. You can't do that again. So Ozark. Uh, we're going to get into spoiler territory. So if you're watching, if you're listening and you haven't heard season three, we're going to, we're going to, yeah, we're going to tell you that, uh, this is about the time, but thank you for listening. You can always come back in, go binge it and then come back to this point. What are we at on terms of, uh, timing for the episode? We're over an hour in. So if you've dealt with us this far, you know, enjoy some Ozark talk. Um, I've got to say Marty bird seeing the paradigm shift that that we saw in his character uh once he got abducted and then came back was easily some of the most riveting television i think uh that i've seen in the last few years he definitely listened to peter laviolette start playing with some jam in here let's go and he did by god did he do it and wendy bird wendy feeling a little bit empowered 
you know, a few times. Some people giving her a little bit of sass. She dropped a... What's the problem now? You know, and that's what we're here for. Really proud of that. Seriously. I, I, um... I thought season three was really good. It went... It went to a, a few different places than I expected, but it was overall... Uh, you know, going back now and and reading your season three takeaways for, that you wrote, what two weeks ago? I finally had the chance to read at twelve forty five a.m. when I got done the finale. There are definitely Breaking Bad uh, elements here, and I never wanted to compare the two or think of the two at the same time because I think when you start comparing shows like that, you kind of shortchange one because there's a recency bias. But I have to say, like, I think Ozark has done a very good job of humanizing the kids on the show and developing them as well, especially in the third season. Your thoughts? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, it's basically Breaking Bad in a different setting. So I think one of the ways that it can set itself apart is by leaning heavily and investing more time into that Missouri-specific stuff, you know, even though it's filmed in Georgia. Um, but, uh, you know, to that point, like Darlene Snell, for example, is like a unique um, Ozark-centric uh, type of person. So I'd like to see more of her. Um, you know, the Wendy and the Marty thing, I think it reminded me of Jesse and Walt and even Skyler a little bit in Breaking yeah. Bad, where it's just kind of like, I think you can only do so much of the like, uh, is this person, are they on the same side or are they working against each other? Are they on the same side or are they working against each other? To the point where I think you get like diminishing returns every time you have that kind of mechanism in a story, uh, you know, only so many times can you do is Jesse working with Walt? Is he not, is he working against him? You know, is Wendy working with Marty is Marty working against it? You know? Um, but I think like you, uh, you know, it's interesting because one of the, one of the things that's very common this day and age in any drama that you watch any crime drama or series, uh, is that there, there aren't really clear, um, there aren't really clear like protagonists and antagonists. Mm -hmm. You know, there's always these gray areas in between where you can sort of have to decide like who you think is the good guy and who's the bad guy, or you have to pick a side or whatever. You know, it's not like in, uh, you know, in the early days of Breaking Bad, it's like, okay, here's Walt and here's like uh, Gus Fring, you know, and then after that, you're like, okay, well, who's really the good guy here and who's really the bad guy here? You know, everybody's got a little bit of good in them and a little bit of bad in them. And, sometimes I think you just want to say like, Hey, who's the bad guy here? Who's the antagonist, you know? And um, that's why it reminds me a lot of breaking bad, you know, walking dead is similar to a lot of shows like that are similar homeland. Uh, you can go through all the series and they kind of have this gray area kind of thing. So um, that's not really even a criticism. It's just kind of an observation. Like I still think it's a great story. And um, you know, I liked how they set it up for season four where Darlene's probably going to play a bigger role. And uh, Ruth has kind of sided with her and they, they've left some interesting kind of storylines going that should be should pick up for the next time around. Yeah, I, I look at it. I'm trying to find the uh, the moment that I, I fell in love with the season um, where Marty really does uh, stand up to the uh, Casey mob boss, Frank. Did I find it? No. Yes. I also yes, I did. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, like, I think one of the cool things, too, about Ozark is that you have um, like a lot of strong uh, female characters, Yeah, um, you know, in Wendy, Ruth, Helen, Darlene, uh, even the FBI agent, um, 
Maya, Maya, I yeah, think Maya. her name was. Yeah. But they all they, they're all like strong and compelling and like authentic too. Because I think what happens sometimes is like in in this day and age, you have like these characters that are like forced on you or shoved on you, and they do it in this like woke bullshit kind of way where like here's a strong female or something which is kind of disingenuous because if you let these actresses play the part and develop these characters they turn into strong and authentic characters naturally you know and that, that's what all five of those actresses were able to do and you have strong compelling interesting unique authentic characters because it hasn't really been um you know because they just let it let it develop naturally and they let those people do what they were hired to do and they've turned those characters into really interesting people so um you even make it like an argument that some of those characters are probably more powerful than the men in the show. I mean, Marty, Frank, uh, you know, Omar, the drug cartel guy. I mean, really, if you think about it, there's probably more um, women, yeah. main main characters who are women than are men. Yeah. Here's the the moment. I guess in Breaking Bad, it was uh, when Walt says to Skyler, I'm the one who knocks, right? This is the Marty Bird moment. This is the the Walter White moment. Happens in episode seven. I'm gonna do this. You come anywhere near me, my family, or Ruth again, the next time you see your son, he's gonna be hanging from a bridge in Juarez. You got that? That to me, like when that moment happened, that's when I was, that's when I knew that we had kind of signaled this total change in his character. I got really excited by it, but you're right. The number of powerful women characters is is really cool to see. And I I have to say, like the the role that Wendy has played has been nothing short of fantastic acting, because in a sense, she's kind of the antithesis of what Skylar was to Walt. Right. Instead of trying to stop her husband from delving further and further into this madness she actually tries to supersede him, which I thought that kind of power dynamic was also a really strong thing. And it kept coming back to that idea that like most of what she tries to do is throwing a lot of unneeded, unrequired, like um, unrequired kind of uh, attention from the feds. And he's right. And it, and every time she goes for something, it seems like it's a, a better way to legitimize their operation and, and try to get them out. But at the same time, she prevented them from being able to flee in the first place. It's it, it's very cool. The dynamics on the show, I think, are, are really neat. I think the only thing that was kind of, yeah, I wouldn't even say it's a negative, but uh, you know, Ben's character, uh, Uncle Ben coming into the story, and then killing him off. You know, the thing is that it's hard to be invested in a character um, that's new, you know, and so the death doesn't really mean as much when you know that it's coming from a mile away. You know, I think in like two episodes towards the end of the series, uh, they spent a lot of time on him and like you knew what was coming. And he was like, okay, well, I kind of care about him. The actor's done a really good job at playing the, the role, um, but it doesn't really resonate. You know, it's like you can't just introduce somebody and then they're dead six episodes, seven episodes later or whatever. Um, so that was the one kind of thing, I guess, but. Um, you know, he served a purpose in kind of like, uh, you know, the, the story mechanism to pushing Ruth away from, uh, Wendy and Marty and towards Darlene instead. So, and maybe it's just kind of bridge the gap there a little bit. Yeah. Um, there was one other thing that happened in this season that I, I want to see how this plays out, but the, the, watching the arc of Helen, I thought 
from from when she was first introduced as a character to where they got how she said about like dipping her toe into the the friendship pool and how she was totally out it was funny because you see this woman who initially comes in and she's being driven everywhere. She's super, she just comes off as super stoic and powerful. And then there's kind of that humanizing factor of her daughter being involved or around her in any way. And then showing the vulnerability because her daughter doesn't know what she's involved in and all of that. And then watching how the, the show ends with a bang this season, I was honestly a little bit surprised the way that that everything kind of went down, I thought we were going to be looking at a scenario where the birds were going to end up down in that dungeon again. I didn't expect uh, the way that it ended. Yeah, no, it was a good season, man. And uh, um, I'm definitely intrigued for for season four, for sure. Um, we binged Ozark over three days, probably. And now we've uh, moved on to Tiger King. So oh. we got two more episodes. Oh. Love the Tiger King. I might actually log off right now so I can go finish it. Okay, that's fine. No, it's fun, man. Let's you know do it again a new sometime. Episode, we'll get, uh, new episode we'll get of Anthony Tiger King is coming and, out this uh, week. Bob back in. Yeah, they're doing another episode of uh, Tiger King. I think it's supposed to come out this week. They're doing like a live reunion show on Netflix, oh. so we'll have to see. Did you see that uh, Discovery is also doing a, um, a spinoff show where they're going to uh, investigate the disappearance of Carol Baskin's husband? Yeah. So that's pretty cool. All right, maybe we'll talk about Tiger King next week. Did you see the reporter ask Trump about Joe Exotic at the press conference? Hold on, I think I can I can cue up this audio. Hold on a second. I know I dropped it into uh into Slack. Where is it at? Yeah. Oh man, I was all excited. Hold on. Um, I did have it. It's not here now. Trump. Well, that's all right. Listen, man, it was fun. Joe and uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll see you next time. Oh, yeah, there it is. Oh, I had I had Twitter muted. Oops. These briefings has been a show on Netflix called uh, Tiger King. Yeah. And uh, the man who's the star of this is a former zoo owner who's serving a 22-year prison sentence. Uh, he's asking you for a pardon, saying he was unfairly convicted. Um, your son yesterday jokingly said that, uh, you know, he was going to advocate for it. And I was wondering if you've seen the show and if you have any thoughts on uh, pardoning uh, Joe Exotic. Which son? It must be Don. I had a feeling it was Don. Is that what he said? I don't know. I know nothing about it. He has 22 years for what? What did he do? He allegedly hired someone to murder an animal rights activist, but he said that he didn't do that. And he was. You think he didn't do it? Are you on his side? Uh, well, I, are you, are you recommending sides, a pardon? Uh, no, I'm, I'm not advocating anything. As a reporter, you're not allowed to do that. You'd be criticized by these. Would you recommend a pardon? I'm not weighing in on time. I don't paper. think you would. I don't think you would. Go ahead. Do you have a question? All right, so that's it. Uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks for checking in. Make sure you go over and uh, subscribe to the show over on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. For Kevin, I'm Russ. Thanks for checking in, and we'll talk to you next week.